I want to share a sobering kind of reality with us and walk through a very sobering topic with you. And so here's, here's what I want to do. This morning, I want to talk about something that is very sobering. Uh, to be honest with you, it's a hard talk. So if you're here and you're a guest, okay, I'm going to give you a heads up on that. It's not always this like, whoa, what's going on, right? And uh, don't feel like the tone uh, of the talk and, and the content of the talk uh, leaves much room for joking and levity and things like that. And so I apologize for that right up front, but uh, the content just doesn't match that attitude today. Here's why. Today I want to talk to you about hell. I want to talk to you about the question of hell. I feel very much like a man, some of you have heard his name, whose name is Charles Spurgeon. When he was asked to talk about hell, here's what he said. He said, these are weighty things that while I dwell upon them, I feel more inclined to sit down and weep and cry than I do to stand up and speak. Let's be honest with you, I feel that way today. I feel the weight of this conversation today. And uh, I'm going to have it two more times, and so I'd appreciate and covet your prayers as we continue to have this conversation. Tim Keller calls this question the great defeater. Here's all he means by that is for a lot of people, it's this question that's their hang-up with Christianity, God, the Bible, faith, all that kind of stuff. And so it causes people to say, man, if this whole thing about hell is really true, then I want nothing to do with that, right? Like, I, I, I don't want anything to do with God, the Bible, faith, anything like that. The question of hell kind of goes like this, is hell a real place? Are there real people there? Is there real fire there? What's going on in hell, right? And here's what I found out. I found out if you do a little research, okay, and you kind of Google this, you can check this out. Pew Research simply says this. Ready? Listen close. If you like this kind of stuff, write this down. 72% of Americans believe in heaven, okay? 72%. So, so here's what I'd say. If you haven't been with us, I, I've been a pastor for 22 years. Here's what I know. I've done tons of funerals. Most people that I do funerals, whether they're church people or not, they, they believe that something happens after you die. So most people are like, oh, they're in a better place. Almost everybody says that to me. They're in a better place, right? And so here, all that tells me is this, is that most people believe that death is not the end. There's something else going on. 72% believe in heaven. 58% of Americans, almost 60%, believe in hell. Okay, almost 60% believe in hell. Now check this out. 4% of Americans... 4% believe they're going to hell. It's interesting, isn't it? Right? So most Americans believe in heaven and believe they're going to get there and hope that their good life is enough to get them to heaven. Here's how the question goes. I have a hard time believing that a loving God would send people to hell. That seems callous, right? That doesn't seem fair that he would do that. Uh, a guy named Russell Bertrand said, that's the very thing that keeps me from being a Christian, this whole idea of hell is the very thing that keeps me from being a Christian. When you think about it, and, and so here's what we're doing. If, 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 if this is your first time here, this series has been like, we're really trying to dig into some hard questions. Around here, uh, we like to run into stuff, not run away from it, right? And so I'm gonna tell you this right up front. You might be here and you're struggling with this. You do not have to agree with everything I say to come here, okay? I'm just gonna let you know that. You're safe. You can wrestle with these questions. But I feel a need as a pastor, to share with you from God's word what the Bible teaches about hell. And when you think about this question, it is the other side of the same coin that we talked about last week. Stay with me on this. You're like, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Last week, here's what we talked about. Why doesn't God step in and do something about the suffering that is a result of evil in our world? So that's what we talked about. Why doesn't God step in and do something about all the suffering we see, which is the result of evil in our world? This week, this week, 
how could God step in and do something, there should be the word in there, about evil that will result in suffering in the next world? So the question this week is, well, how in the world could God step in, do something about evil that will eventually send people to a place where apparently their suffering is going to take place? It's just the other end. So the question is this, well, how in the world, God, certainly if he's a loving God, he wouldn't send people to hell. That doesn't seem loving. And then the question goes first, say, well, you know, a fair God certainly wouldn't send people that he created to hell. That certainly doesn't seem fair. And for some people, it's the question of hell that is their hang-up. Listen close. And, and maybe that's you. Like, like, maybe you're here this morning, you're like, this is it, Dan. This is my hang-up. I'm glad you're here. And I just want to have an honest conversation. And here's what I want to do. I want to do my best for the next several minutes to, to do my best to show you what the message of Christianity says about hell. And I think it's really important, dial in on this, for us to look at what we do know, okay, ready? And be okay with what we don't know. <laughs> and not try to fill in the gaps with what we don't know, right? I think, it's, I think it's important for us to say, okay, what do we know? And then be okay with what we don't know. So I want to take a look at hell against the question of certainly a good, loving, and fair God couldn't send people there. And we have to start with this question. Let's just start with the basics. We got to answer the question, is hell real? Here's why we got to start with that, because there's a lot of people who would think this this morning. They think, hell is not real. It's just made up, and it's something that's made up so that people behave better. So therefore, you can scare the hell out of them, right? I'm not trying to be funny. So if you make up this idea of hell, well, then I'm going to be scared, right? And and then I'm going to behave better. And so I got to ask the question, is hell for real. And so some people think, well, you know, I know it's in the Bible, but I think that's the Old Testament God because he seems angry. And maybe when you get to the New Testament and Jesus comes, he's kinder, he's gentler, he's meek, he's mild. Maybe he kind of eradicates this idea of hell. Here's what's interesting. I want you to write this down and I want to show you something very fascinating. Hell is real. Hell is real. And the truth be known, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. That's interesting, isn't it? You mean meek, mild, kind, grace, truth, Jesus? Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. In fact, one author stated this, about 13% of Jesus' sayings revolve around this idea of hell. That's interesting. Over half of his parables, stories he told, dealt with the idea of eternal judgment. Hell is real, and there's this fascinating story that you have opened in your laps that I want to read the whole thing, and then we've got to make some observations. You ready to go there with me? Can we do this? Okay. I need you to stay with me and dial in because this is an important conversation we're having today. Here's what it says. Verse 19, chapter 16, book of Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Very graphic picture there. Verse 22, time came, beggar died, angels carried him to Abraham's side. Rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham, that's going to be key in a minute, far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called up to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son... Remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. 
Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Basically, he's saying to him, they have the Hebrew scriptures. Let's put it this way. They have the Bible, you know. We have the Old Testament, New Testament. He's saying they have the the scriptures. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, their Bible, they won't be convinced even if someone from the dead goes to them. Here's what I want you to write down. Let's just say it from this story Jesus tells. Hell is a real place with real people. I'll explain that a little more in a minute, but it's a real place with real people. In this story, Jesus is telling a story where it is clear this rich guy is in a real place. There's this great chasm, this great separation. He's not where Lazarus is in the story. It's interesting. But here's what I want you to dial in on because the two characters in the story are of extreme interest to me. Lazarus is the only one in Jesus' parables who's ever given a name. Check me on that. But Jesus told all these parables, and only this time does he give a name to one of the characters, Lazarus. That's interesting. And so Lazarus is given a name, but the other guy is just called what? The rich guy. Why in the world does he just call him the rich guy? Tim Keller would say in his commentary on this verse, he would say it's simply because that guy, listen close, is identified by the things that he pursued here on this earth, and that's what identified him here on earth. Hell is full. Stay with me. I want to say this with gentleness and clearness. Hell is full of people who spend their entire life creating an identity for themselves absent of God. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard, some of you have heard this name, very smart guy, but he said something that we all can understand to some degree. Sin at its core is basing our identity on or drawing our ultimate fulfillment from anything but God. You see, this rich guy, he was identified as the rich guy because that's what his identity was based on, right? And so here's what we know about him. Two things we know. You can write this down and and just percolate on it. I'm giving you a lot of information. We know this about him. He was rich. That's what his identity was, but he was rich without generosity. And so he, he... He went to great pains to become rich. He had lots of wealth. But as we read this story, he literally walked over Lazarus, who just wanted the crumbs from his table with his money bags. It's interesting, isn't it? So we know this about the guy. He was rich, but he was not generous. But something else you might not know unless you look really deep into this story is he was religious and yet without God. That's interesting. You see, you're saying, Dan, how do you know that? Like, How do we know this guy was religious? Well, I think there's several things that tip me off. First is this, Jesus, you ready? This is fascinating. Jesus is talking to a rich and religious audience. You're like, he is? Yeah. How do you know that? Well, you always want to read your Bible in its context. Always read it in its zip code and look at verse 14, same chapter in your Bibles. Verse 14, if you don't have your Bible, we'll throw it on the screen. The Pharisees, by the way, very religious who loved what? Say it out loud. Money. Heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You see, here's what I know. He's speaking to a rich and religious audience. 
Two things stand out to me that tell me that he was religious and yet without God. First, when he cries out, he calls out to Father Abraham, the father of his religion. He does not call out to Father God, his heavenly father. That's interesting. You see, here's what I want you to know this morning. This may be new news to some. But you can be religious. I want to be really kind about the way I say this, but I want to be clear. You can be religious and not have a relationship with God. You can go to church every Sunday, grow up in church, and not have a relationship with God, not be saved, not be a Christian, whatever word you want to put to it. In fact, if sin at its core, please stay with me on this, is basing my life and identity on something minus God, there's two ways that I can do that. Think about this. Two ways I can do that. One is obvious. We're like, I can be a hellion, right? I'm just going to rebel. I'm going to just ignore everything God has to say. I'm going to live it up, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, right? And everybody's like, yeah, that's right. Man, you're living apart from God, right? So I can be rebellious and just decide I'm going to, my, my identity is going to be apart from minus God, or I could be really, really religious. And what do I do when I'm really, really religious? Well, I look at myself and say, look at how well I'm doing, how moral I am, how many of God's commands I'm obeying. Now, God, you owe me. You see, either way, I'm creating an identity, whether it's pious religiosity or awful rebellion, in trying to create my life apart from a God who in his grace loves and saves. You see, hell is full of people who create their identity apart from God. Not only that, I want you to write this down. This is interesting in the story. Hell is described by fire and darkness. Hell is described by fire and darkness. This is interesting to me. You're saying, help me understand that, Dan. Well, look at verse 24, chapter 16. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this, what's it say? Fire. Jesus in other places, Matthew 8, 11, he says this. He says, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, fire, right? Matthew 18, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands, two feet, be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 22 says this. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into, there's our word, the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the deal. I told you, a sobering conversation. Many Bible scholars see no reason to believe that that's anything but literal fire and darkness. Now, I want to say something, and then I want to make sure I explain something to you. I tend to lean that way. But if there's no reason not to take it literally, then it seems like it would be literal fire and darkness. But here's what I know. Some of you in the room would be in this camp, maybe. There are some people, you ready, who would take that as metaphorical. Like fire and darkness, just picture something, right? So it's not literal fire and darkness, but it's metaphorical. The fire and darkness pictures what hell must be like. Now look here a second. So if you're in that camp or you're like, man, I have friends that are in that camp, 
I'm going to tell you something, okay? By the way, don't post this on Facebook. People get confused by it, right? I'm okay with you taking it metaphorically as long as. As long as you're not taking it metaphorically so as to somehow make hell look better. Because can I just be honest with you? If you take hell to be metaphorical and it's fire and darkness, then here's what that means. That means that those who reject Jesus live for eternity in the fire of the unquenchable lust of their own heart. And in the deep darkness of their own self-centered pride, all apart from the restraining presence of God. So if you take it metaphorical, I would lean literal, but if you take it metaphorical, can we at least say this, that if it's metaphorical, it ain't better? Because if you take the unquenchable thirst of my lust and the deep darkness of my pride, and you take the restraining presence of God apart from that, and you take that out over eternity, look here, that's chaos. That's erosion. That's deterioration. That's awfulness. That makes Las Vegas look mild this week. You see, the point I think Jesus is just trying to make is like, it ain't good. <laughs> like, it's a place where God's presence, gone, separated from, where this fire, you ever think about fire? It's thirst, never gets quenched. It just keeps eating whatever, right? Just keeps eating whatever, right? Now, here's what I would say. Hell's a real place with real people. Hell's described by fire and darkness, but I think it's misunderstood. So I'm going to say something that's going to, that, that, that some of you are going to leave here and you'll be like, what? Okay, I'm okay with that if you are, because I think hell needs to be reframed. I think the reason we don't understand hell is because we look at it through the wrong lens. Okay, so some of you, I'm, just a warning, spoiler alert. Okay, I hope you love me. Okay, if you, if you disagree with what I'm getting ready to say, my email address is aspeace at graceohio.org. <laughs> Happy to respond. But I believe this. I believe that hell needs to be reframed. Here's how most of us look at hell. We look at hell, and you ought to write this down individualistically. Now, I'm using my little NFL telestrator, and I love it. Okay, look at that. That's you, that's me. We see ourselves walking, living our lives here on earth, right? And so we see ourselves many times individualistically. It's about my life and what happens to me. And so what's going to happen to me is I'm going to live life. I'm going to get to the point where I die. And at death, there's this important moment that happens because death is the moment I go to see my maker. You ever heard that phrase? You're going to see your maker. The problem is, is that many people today have this picture of God like he's this cosmic Santa Claus. You know what I mean by that? I mean, truly, I was reading the surveys. It's like you're going to get up there, and he's been this cosmic Santa Claus seeing if you're naughty or nice. And so he's like, you better not cry. You better not yell. You better go to church, or I'll send you to hell. Or, you know, he's kind of like that God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> truly. And so what happens is we juxtapose or we hold in contradiction. It's like, okay, it's my life, death, and it's heaven or hell. And it's like that's how, how we see heaven and hell. And it's like, I get that. And, and 
understand that. But I think this picture of hell that you see up here doesn't do hell justice. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't even understand hell in the grand scheme of God's story. You're like, Dan, now you really got me messed up because that's how I see hell. So what are you talking about? Well, let me show you another picture. This will represent, because I'm going to draw, erase, draw, erase, but stay with me. And if you have room to draw, you might want to draw this. But this represents God's story. See, the story of God is this. By the way, this is interesting, a little Bible trivia. Heaven and hell are never used together in the Bible. It's interesting, isn't it? Google, check me on it. But you know what is? Heaven and earth. <laughs> you see, here's the story of God, that God created the what? Heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. You know that. God created the heavens and the earth, and we know this from the story of God, that at some point in time in God's presence in heaven, there's this angel. By the way, he doesn't have a tail, pitchfork, horns, all that. Satan is an angel, angel of light. But in the story of God, this angel wanted to be God. Let me just, that, that's simply what's going on there. And so he wants to be God. He rebels against God. And so what happens in the presence of God that we can't have that, and so God banishes him from heaven and his army. You tracking with me? And when he does that, he banishes Satan and his army from heaven, which leads to this question. Everybody look here. You'll be able to impress your friends this afternoon. When in the world did God create hell? Get ready. Get your pens ready. Get, everybody get your pens ready. I want you to write down the answer because you didn't know this, but here's the answer. You got your pens ready? Here's the answer. You can tell them I said it. You can quote me on it. The answer is this. I don't know. By the way, neither do you. <laughs> you see, I, I, I have no idea. Somewhere in there, but here's what I do know. You ought to write this down. Matthew 25, 41. I know why it was created, why it was prepared. Matthew 25, 41, you know what it says? That hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. It's interesting, isn't it? Somehow it fits into this story of God. Now, what's interesting about the story of God is that whereas Satan wanted to be God, gets banished from heaven, Matthew 25, 41, God prepares hell for Satan and his angels, that we know this in the story of God that he creates man, there we are again, on earth. Fascinating, right? Now, I want you to remember this, remember this wording, and that in the beginning... God walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. Anybody think that's cool? <laughs> if you don't, let me say it again. In the beginning, God walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden. Like, I kind of would have liked to have been there. That sounds kind of cool. Problem is this, this angel who was banished from heaven, he had an agenda. And he shows up in the story Shows up in the garden. You know what he says to the man? Don't you want to be your own what? God? Simplified. <laughs> Maybe God's tricking you. Maybe God's not telling you the whole truth. Maybe you could do a better job of being the God of your life. Satan didn't tell him how that turned out for him. And so Adam and his wife decided to be their own God, do things their own way. And so here's how the story of God goes, that just like Satan was banished from heaven, all of a sudden we have man banished from the what? The garden. And you have sin enter the picture. 
And when sin enters the picture, you have this grand separation that takes place. All of a sudden, this beautiful paradise, this God walking with man in the cool of the day, you have sin enter the scene. Man, listen close, becomes a sinner. St. Augustine says at that point in time, because I'm a sinner, I can look into my own soul, see a sinner, and I can smell the smoke of hell's fires. It's an interesting picture. Even the earth, Romans 8 says, because man sinned, decided to be his own God, groans to this day. We see some of that. Like even the earth is groaning because all of a sudden God started it out. This wasn't the way he designed, wanted it to be, but this is what happened. Man decides I want to be my own God and now we have this separation. Here's the cool part about the story of God, that God did not leave man to his own devices and decisions and the consequences of those decisions. Stay with me on this. But the man, you ready? The man sinned banished from the garden, the God who walked with man in the cool of the day, that God walked for man to the hill where there was a cross. Why? Because that God wanted to reconcile what was separated. He wanted to provide a way for that man to be able to reunite, reconcile his relationship with him. You tracking with me? It's fascinating. You see, what happens the moment that I say yes to Jesus is I'm reconciled to God. It's a fascinating story. And all those who say yes to Jesus simply say, yes, I believe that God took my place. I believe that God died so that I could reconcile what was broken. The Bible says the earth groans. The Bible says because of our sin, we're enemies of God, that Jesus died so that we could have a relationship with God. It's interesting. Now, the Bible says this, the story of God doesn't just end there, but if you read the very last chapter in your Bible, the very last part of your Bible, Revelation, that this thing's leading to a grand climax where God is going to make everything new. I don't know if you knew that or not. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and there's going to be this grand city where literally the God who here walked in the cool of the day, now here walked for man to the cross, now here is going to live with man forever. Problem is this, that God can't live live and reside with evil and sin, can he? Can't. And so at that moment, literally, literally outside the gates of that new heaven, that new earth, that new city of Jerusalem, all of those who decide to be their own God are given over to their decision. You see, here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. It's interesting to me. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, this picture of hell fits into God's grand story of the Bible, and yet it fits different than just the way we look at it through our individual lens, which leads to this question. You mean to tell me, Dan, God sends people to hell? I want you to write this down. I want to explain it. The story of God says this, God saves people from hell. God saves people from hell from the hell that they are destined for. 
God warns people. He doesn't want people to go to hell. In fact, I'll show you in one of the most famous passages in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to what? Save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Check this out. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Guys, listen to me. The moment sin entered God's story, you and I stand condemned. We're sinners. And so we stand condemned. We're sinners. The the very smoke of hell we can smell if we look deep inside our souls and we see sin. And we're like, I am condemned. And yet the story of God is that he came to save to rescue. There's hints in the story. Look back at Luke 16. Look at what it says. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they'll also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying your Bible, your Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we subsequently have the New Testament as well is God's SOS, is God's, this loving God warning and warning people that he loves about this place that's real. Why is that? Because God warns us in the Bible about a place that's real and he loves us because he does not want us to be left to our own devices and decisions. Second Peter says something interesting. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's fascinating, isn't it? See, God warns us in the Bible, but if you look at the story in Luke 16, there's something interesting. Look at the dude's request. Said, okay, Father Abraham, if you'll just send someone from the dead, like if somebody would just go back from the dead and tell my family, look at Abraham's response. He says, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets. If they're not getting it out, they're not going to be convinced if someone rises from the dead. You get the point? The irony to that is this. The guy telling the story is who? Jesus. And in a few chapters, they're going to take this Jesus, and what are they going to do? They're going to kill him. And then they're going to bury him. And then he's going to do what three days later? He's going to rise again. And guess what? Some of the people listening to this story are still not gonna, what? Believe. You see, God doesn't just warn us in the Bible. I want you to write this down. God replaced us at the cross. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died in our place and that God in Jesus experienced hell for me so that I could experience heaven God in Jesus took my punishment for me so I could share eternity with him. God in Jesus became forsaken so I could be accepted. God in Jesus endured separation so I could be included. That's what these dear gals were were illustrating. They've said yes to Jesus. They said, yes, I believe Jesus came, died in my place for my sin, was buried, rose again. I believe that. Yes, And the moment you say yes to Jesus, here's what happens. You go from being a sinner to a saint. 
You go from being forsaken to being accepted. You go from being guilty to being forgiven. You go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. And you go from expecting hell to anticipating heaven. That's fascinating. That's the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, said it like this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell itself is a question. Think about this hard with me for a minute. You object to hell, what are you really asking God to do? To wipe out past sins? At all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so on Calvary. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, the objections we have about hell is like, well, God's got to forgive them. God's got to wipe out. And he's like, I sent Jesus for that very purpose. So it leads to this question, and then, then we're going to land the ship. But guys, th- this is so important what I'm getting ready to share. Even if you don't agree with me, I'd love you to write these things down. Because I get asked this question. Oh, Dan. Woo! This is the Sunday I decided to come? You know? Yeah. So I get asked this question. Is it really that important? Because I believe all the other stuff you say every other Sunday, Dan. But this hell stuff doesn't go over well with my friends. Right? It's kind of hard to swallow. I mean, it's, that's tough. Is it that important that I believe in hell? I want you to write this down, and I'm going to explain why I say it. Getting hell right is essential. I want to say this with tenderness and grace, but getting hell right is absolutely essential. And you say, why is it essential? Four reasons, done. Four reasons, were done, but I want you to write them down. First is this. If I don't get hell right, I'll never appreciate the extent of his justice. I'll never appreciate how just God is. Can we just think logically for a minute? Some of you enjoy this kind of thinking, and so I just want to take you there. If you think logically for a minute, all of us have a sense of justice. I know you do, because this Las Vegas thing makes some of you mad. It ought to make you mad. I know you have a sense of justice because when we did the sex trafficking thing, there was like five, 600 people in here. And, and so here's what, we, here's what we know. Logically, let's think about it. We all in this room have a sense of justice. Like we, we feel comfortable evaluating what's right, what's wrong, and what should be done about it. Yet we probably all in this room would admit and agree that we're flawed human beings. Like, like none of us in this room are perfect. Can I get one amen in the room? I've been pastor 22 years. I've only ever met one person told me they were perfect. And their husband said, they're lying. (laughs) You know, I'm just saying, I've not met that person, right? Like, so we're all flawed. That means we all have problems. We all distort it by our own sin. And yet we feel totally comfortable, even though distorted and flawed, making evaluations that we know what's right, what's wrong, and what should be done about it. We're happy to pronounce judgment. That's why sometimes we say things like, I hope they burn in hell. I'm sure you've never made that statement. But when they captured Osama bin Laden, I heard it. It's interesting, isn't it? Last night, I had known nothing about this man. The former mayor of Las Vegas was talking 
doing an interview, and he said, I'm not going to let that killer change my life because this moment I know he's rotting in hell and eternal damnation. That's what he said. I know nothing about the man. You see, there's something about us that we feel okay saying, I hope they get what they deserve. Like, we feel okay doing that as flawed human beings, but for some reason we feel uncomfortable with a holy, perfect, righteous, all-knowing, sovereign God doing that, don't we? You know why? You know why? Tell you a secret. Because we want to be God. Sound familiar? It's kind of been going on a long time. You see, sometimes we get frustrated because we're like, well, I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if that's right. I don't know if God should. And for some reason, we feel totally comfortable. And what we miss is the truth that the cross is Jesus. The cross is Jesus, not just loving us. Yes, Jesus loved the cross. The cross is Jesus absorbing the judgment of God for us. Please hear me say that. I know. It's like, what? You want God to be holy. You want him to be just. And the minute I take hell out of the picture, I make stale the message of the cross. The Bible uses this word. Let's throw Romans 3 up there. All sin falls short of God's glory. We've heard that before. All justified freely by his grace. Yay, grace, love it. Through the redemption, love that. Bought back by God that came by Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Old-time word is propitiation. Like, what's that? <laughs> like, he's the offering to satisfy God's justice and his holiness. Wow. You see, here's the deal. I can't understand his justice if I don't understand what it was that God absorbed on my behalf. Beyond that, this is interesting to me, Jesus is more interested in justice than you and me put together, than all of us in this room put together. You're like, really? Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Look at this. Let's throw a tree on the screen. Here's what we think. Sex trafficking, we got to do something about it. Pornography, let's cut that out of our society. Jesus said, I'm way more interested in justice than you are. I don't want to just cut that limb off. I want to get to the root of lust racism let's cut that out of our culture jesus said i know you're you're really interested in that i want to get to the root of pride violence violence let's get rid of that what happened in las vegas makes me so mad jesus like me too i understand I want to get to the root of anger. You see, Jesus is very interested in justice. And if I take hell out of the equation, I'll never appreciate the justice of God. Beyond that, I'll never totally understand how much he loves me. You ought to write that down. I will never understand the depth of his love. Hell is not proof that God doesn't love me. It's actually proof of the depths of his love. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. Well, I understand the depths of somebody's love when I put together what it costs them to love me. You're like, help me understand that. Okay, I will. 
This is my friend Adam. He's sitting here. Let's suppose Adam came and said, Dan, I, I love you and your family. Like, I want to show you how much I love you. I'm like, great. Like, I want to pay, like, I want to pay one of you, I want to pay your, your bill or maybe some of your bills. And I'm like, awesome. But the natural next question would be what? Which one? Oh, Dan, I want to pay your subscription to Sports Illustrated. Great. I don't get Sports Illustrated, Adam, right? Okay. How about I pay one of your cable bills? That's cool. Like, thank you. That's very kind of you. Very generous. Very thoughtful. But if Adam came to me, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, and said, Dan, I want to pay off your mortgage and your kid's college debt, I'd be blown away. I'd be like, what? How, how we, what do you, why do you want to do that? Why me, what do you, right? Like the cost. You see, here's the deal. If we take hell out of the equation, we minimize the cost of Christ. J.D. Greer says it this way, and I'm going to try to read this. Warning, if you've got kids in the room, warning, and they understand what I'm saying, a little bit of this graphic detail ahead. On the cross, Jesus' punishment was scarcely describable. They would have beaten Jesus until he was barely recognizable. This bloody, disfigured remnant of a man was given a recycled, used cross, likely covered in the blood, feces, and urine of the other men that had used it previously. The cross beam which they laid across his bare back with muscles and bones exposed was made of rough hewn timber with splinters and edges and weighed nearly 100 pounds. Slowly, those on the cross would have suffocated to death. The worst part was what began in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus shrunk back in horror. Later, you would hear these words which epitomize hell itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we like to sing in church, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. One of the ways you understand how much God loves us is seeing what it cost him to save us. He experienced my hell so that I might experience heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, think lightly of hell and you'll think lightly of the cross. I'll never understand the depth of his love. I'll never experience the serenity of his peace. I gotta fly through this, but hell tells me two things. First, it tells me what Jesus endured, that he endured the wrath of God so that I could enjoy peace with God. That's the cross. But it also tells me something else. It tells me God is righteous and just and he'll make everything right in the end. He'll bring peace to earth. Tim Keller says something I love. If I don't believe that there is a God who eventually will put all things right, you know what I'll do? I'll take up the sword and be sucked into an endless vortex of retaliation. You know why? Because people will hurt us, harm us, mess us over. Only if I'm sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. And I would even say to forgive. And experience this peace the Bible talks about. The peace of God that passes under standing. Philippians 4, check me on it. Interesting. I won't 
experience the peace. I won't understand the love. I won't totally appreciate his justice, but the last one, I got to get hell right because if I don't, I'll never, ever feel the urgency of his mission. You got to see something with me. I'll never feel the urgency of his mission. When you read the story, look at verse 27, 28. The rich man answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Guys, listen, and I'm done, I promise. Who's the most passionate evangelist in the story? It's the rich man. Experiencing hell for himself. And he doesn't say, you know, them there folks ought to come here too. I beg you, send somebody. What a sobering point. It's a sobering reality to me. How could we believe in a loving God who came to save people from their own decisions and consequences and do absolutely nothing? Charles Spurgeon, when asked the question, how in the world, Charles Spurgeon, can you believe in a loving God who allows millions of people who have never heard? And Spurgeon said this, that might be troubling. Listen close. But that's not what troubles me the most. What most troubles me is how we who claim to have known and experienced the love of God could be doing next to nothing to take the love of God to those people. Wow. Tough conversation. Can I say a couple things, close in prayer and dismiss you? First, I would covet your prayers. I gotta have it twice more after this. I have felt every emotion you can imagine this morning because I know this is a sobering conversation. See, here's the deal. Hell's a real place. Whether you take it literally like I would lean into or you think it's metaphorical, can we just say it's not where I want to be? Yet the story of God is that God came to rescue. Like he doesn't just warn us, he replaced us at the cross and he says, I want you to be with me forever. And so he experienced hell so we could expect heaven. And some of you are like, I didn't even know that. I thought if I went to church enough times, if I was religious enough, I grew up in the church. That's not the way this thing rolls out. But it comes when I say yes to Jesus. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that he died for me for my sin in my place. I need to tell you this. If you're here and you've never done that, that invitation is open to you this moment today. Some of you are like, well, man, do I really, really got to believe that? I'm kind of a follower of Christ, but I don't know that I, I really buy that. And, and I'm okay if you're struggling with it, but I will tell you this. If you're not there, you're going to cheapen the justice of God seen at the cross. I don't think you're going to be able to fully understand the love of God. You may struggle experiencing the peace of God because here's the deal. Unless God is just and will make all things right, you're going to live in this endless vortex of I got to make things right myself. And you're going to live in this cycle of retaliation. And there are some of you that are like, you know, this very conversation is the very thing that makes me want to run from God. And, and I respect that if that's where you're at and we're happy to have more conversation, but can I just ask you to do me one favor and, and I'm done? Can I actually at least be intellectually honest enough to not just doubt what you're running from? So if you're going to run from God and what the Bible teaches in Christianity, can you at least be honest with what you're running to? Because running from something is not just enough. 
and every last one of us leans the ladder of our life against the wall of faith. And so if you're going to run from God, you're like, I don't know that I get that. You're running to something. Can I ask this? What are you running to? Where's meaning come from? How do you settle the matters of justice and love and peace in your own heart? Because it's not just enough to doubt God. I've got to look at what in the world I'm going to lean the ladder of my life against. So, Father, this is the end of our conversation in this room. My guess is it's not the end of the conversation. I love the people that I get to hang out with on Sundays. And I've infringed on their time a little bit this morning because I think this is an important conversation. So I pray that you would take it, complete it, give traction to it way better than, than I, a flawed preacher, could ever do. But I'm grateful that at the center of this sobering conversation is a God chasing us. That the cross tells me you love us. That your desire was to reconcile what is broken. So God, I pray that for those of us who've never accepted that gift, today might be the day that we embrace that gift. And for those of us who have, I pray at this moment, you would help us right now in our mind's eye to grab pictures of two or three people in our head that we get to hang out with who don't know how much you love them and what you did for them. And help us, help us to feel the urgency Jesus did when he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I love you. I know you love us. Thank you. Help us to grow in our understanding of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Glad you were here today. Look forward to seeing you next week. Lord bless you as you go.